What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. You might know us as the co-founders of Of A Kind, the co-authors of Work Wife, or just two women who feel so strongly about their relationship that they own the domain, ClaireAndErica.com. Related, head over there to sign up for our newsletter and get our show notes. We also added promo codes for our advertisers. Oh so, so if you're handy. looking for a coupon code, you can get that at ClaireAndErica.com. What service we're doing. Truly. And leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463. We've been getting some very charming voicemails lately. We love them. They're like a warm hug. There was, they are like a warm <laughs> hug as opposed to a cold hug. Yeah. The worst right. kind. <laughs> They're really nice. Um, something we wanted to talk about on this episode is mm-hmm. an ingredient that I have rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Um, Marmite. So good. So good. So salty. So, so like, incre- like I kind of feel bloated every time I eat it. <laughs> But the, I don't mind. No. What's it's, not to like? You know, for a really long time, I didn't really understand Marmite other than it's like a British thing that is very divisive. Incredibly incredibly British, incredibly divisive. In fact, Marmite sells a mug that says love it or hate it because people have such strong opinions and they've totally leaned into that. They have no issue with it. They have great merch, which you turned me on to. Oh, my God. Well, first, they, their best merch which was revealed to me because they were doing some influencer marketing Mm -hmm. and they were sending personalized bottles of Marmite to people. Sort of like Coca-Cola, like how that had people's names on it. That is correct. Yeah. But you can also order them on, well, uh, if you're British, Mm -hmm. at least on the internet, (laughs) I didn't find a way to order them in in the United States. You can order personalized little jars and they also have like seasonal labels and things. And there's a rainbow flag one that says spread love, not hate, like just things where you're like, you get, you get it guys. I, when I, you were showing me this, it dawned on me that the Marmite like logo and just label is really beautifully designed and classic and so good. And I never really appreciated it before, but it's, it's excellent. It is excellent. Um, so Marmite is made with yeast extract. It's a byproduct of beer brewing. It is mm. like so strongly flavored. It is not gluten-free, but it's like gluten, like if you're gluten aware, okay. I think it's yeah. probably fine, yeah. but not if you're celiac. Okay, fine. Um, and one of the problems is there are, just aren't that many ways that to eat it as far as I've discovered. Yeah. Well, this is this is why I think for the longest time I just didn't get it because I was like, just put it on toast. And I don't love it just on its own on toast. Like, I don't think I would it's do that. It's too strongly flavored. Yeah. Um, but the reason I've started eating it recently is because I discovered that you can put it on 
discovered. I started putting it on. <laughs> I didn't discover it. I re- went to my refrigerator. Yeah. I put Marmite on toast and then some Greek yogurt on top mm-hmm. and like the tangy, creamy with the salty, savory. It's so good. And you I served it to, it to me yesterday. yesterday. Yeah, it, served. Was, mm-hmm. it was outstanding. It was really good. The thing that sent me on a Marmite kick a while ago that I've since fallen off of was that um, this really cute B&B in upstate New York called Table on 10 serves Marmite on their avocado toast. And it's the same concept as your yogurt toast, where it's just like a thin layer of Marmite on the bread and then the avocado on top. And I think what works about both of those preparations is there's something fatty to cut a through this content. like really salty sort of like, it's not really acidic, I guess. It's like umami flavor. flavor. That's right. No, yeah, it's yeah. umami flavored. Yeah. Um, another recipe that seems appealing is a Marmite butter, which like, you know, sounds so good. you're just blending these two yeah. things together so you don't even have to bother with two toppings. I, I peeked at this recipe when I saw it in the show notes and it was like, you could put it on scallops, you could put it on chicken. And I was like, wow, all of these things sound delicious. All of these things. Oh, also, I did see a Food 52 recipe with mm-hmm. Marmite on like a chicken thigh. Yeah, that sounds um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Just savory, just some savory. Do you keep it in the fridge? No. Okay. I keep it in the fridge and you shouldn't keep it in the fridge. Because it just gets harder it's and so like, hard impossible and hard to, to spread. spread. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that Because feels- it has this consistency of like a thick honey. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I need to not keep it in the fridge because that's part of the reason I don't eat it that much because it always seems so hard to deal with. So much work. It's like tahini for me sometimes where I'm yeah. like, oh, exactly. like I have to mix it. Exactly. And then, I don't know, I'm exactly. not in the mood. Something that feels related to this that I've been really into lately is that Momofuku has started making its own versions of what would condiments, I guess. Um, yeah, condiments. And so there's something that's a miso. Well, it's like a miso adjacent thing, but it's not miso. It's called hosan and it's made of chickpea, chickpea instead of miso is normally made of barley, I think. Or right? soybeans. Or, yeah, or, yeah right. or some combination. Um, it's so delicious. Would be very good in almost any preparation I would think that would work for Marmite. It's not as strong as Marmite, and it's like a slightly different flavor profile than traditional miso, but it is so good. And I you can't do get use it, it in the same way you would use traditional miso or oh, no yeah. more as like a spread? No, like, I've been using it more as, as like a traditional miso, but I would okay. definitely spread it. I just don't make toast. I'm not in a toast making phase yeah, these days. I understand. I'm not doing a lot of spreading things on things. Um, but, <laughs> Absolutely. but anytime I make something that just feels like it needs like a little more oomph, I will add this hose on to it. I don't know where you can get it. They sell it. They at, only, I looked, Claire, yeah. because after you, after we got it together yeah. at what's that place called on in Hudson Yards? <sighs> Peach Mart. Yes, good Peach call. Mart. Um, so this is like Momofuku's version of a Japanese deli in Hudson Yards in New York. It is the best thing going at Hudson Yards. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I, I just, yeah, it's, no, it's true. It's, it's really wonderful. Good. Yeah, and there are a couple other good things yeah. going, but it is the best thing yeah. going. And you bought this, mm-hmm. and I didn't, and I experienced um, regret and yeah. remorse. <laughs> and I looked online, and it's I think the only place that they're selling it right now, which is yeah, weird. Well, that is odd. They um, also have. So I went back. I was near there this weekend, and I knew that you had that regret. So I was like, I'm going to go get some. It for was Erica. incredibly generous. And then they also have a soy sauce alt, basically. That is rye. Was it made rye? Yeah, and it had like a little dropper. Yeah, but it tastes like related to soy sauce, but totally different. It's also delicious. I highly recommend these things. They also have some seasoned salts. Way into all of them. So these are just, this is actually not really a Marmite content. It's like salt, salt, salt condiments. <laughs> salt the salt whole, condiments. That's right. Salty condiments. I, yeah. I yeah. think we've broadened it. I think we've yeah. opened it up. That's I right. I think I would yeah. be willing to come back to this topic. I, same. Um, now we're going to move on to something that... 
feels um, not related at all to salty condiments. Well, it's salty. We're going to talk about some books and some authors. Yeah, some books and authors. Yeah. One book that I loved so much, and you also loved, but not as much as me. You weren't like, wow, this blew my mind. No, but I liked it a lot Um, because it's just so well written. This book is called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And it's funny. So I picked up the book once at a bookstore and put it back down because the cover attracted me. And I think I'd heard good things about it. And then I read the premise and it was that this woman is called upon to help her friend who has stepkids who spontaneously catch on fire when they get upset. So I guess it's not actually spontaneous. It's it's yeah. predictable. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, I don't like like weird all reality fantasy things. It's not it's like I don't I, I don't not interested. And then Chris picked it up and he bought it and he loved it so much and read it in like a day. And I was like, okay, I'll read it. And I loved it so much. And it turns out that the only thing in the book that feels like quote unquote magical is this fire thing. Um, and so the re- it doesn't feel like a it's like magical book. realism. It's not. Yeah. 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 And, but that's the only magical yeah. realism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And it, everything else about the book feels so true to life that by the end, it doesn't seem odd that this is a characteristic of these kids. Have you ever read books by Kelly Link? No. Um, she writes short stories that are similar in this mm-hmm. way where there's like one thing mm-hmm. that feels totally insane yeah. and out there and it and would never happen, but everything else is rooted in a reality that you very much understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is really funny. It's a super quick read and it's really page turny, but it also just has such excellent writing that like a lot of the lines I think just stop you in your tracks. Totally. There were a lot of things I had to go back and that I wanted to go back and yeah. read again to be like, that was good. Or like that's saying something about something else. Yes, exactly. I was flipping through it yesterday in preparation for this. And I was like, am I going to read this book a second time? Because I actually feel like I was so desperate to consume it that I... For kind plot. Of, like yeah, to get exactly. through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I kind of missed a, a lot of stuff that that it was trying to say. I think one of the things we were both really impressed with is how well the women, it's so it's about two women mm-hmm. and their friendship in yeah. a lot of ways and how well the women are written by a man and yes. how well the like female friendship is is developed by a man. They are crazily well-written characters and feel so realistic. And I think I, it also made me realize that I just don't read fiction by men very often at all. And then... Yeah, something to feel good about. <laughs> yeah, Pat yourself on the back. A, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I don't read that so much or so much fiction that it's like such an a, such a feat. But I was like, wow, I I can't believe I like this so much, and this is just written by this like straight white dude. Uh-huh. Um, the other book written by a man that I thought did such a good job um, of tackling female friendship is Rich and Pretty by mm-hmm. Raman Alam. Mm-hmm. Um, we had him on the podcast um, and talked about it a little bit. Then it's it's just like. In this knowing way that you're like, how do you, how do, how are you getting it right? Yeah, it was so remarkable. The main character, so the main character is like the most complex character, and she's basically a really smart woman who has a bit of a fuck up. Yeah, she's even, a screw. Well, well yeah, that's not what even, I was going to say was that she was a screw up, but then right. it's hard because she basically she's she has not even this, being that active about it. Right, she has this incident in her life that gets her off what would have otherwise been a sort of track to success, or at um, least traditional. Yeah, success. yeah. And she, yeah, just gets lazy and sort of, yeah, she's become sort of a screw up, but she is so likable and so funny. And it's a burnout. Yeah, she's a burnout. That's what she is. And I wanted to be her friend so badly. She was so nuanced. And it's funny because I didn't necessarily relate to her, but you could, you understand and have sympathy for her situation, I think. Yes, yes. Another thing I liked about the way that 
these two female characters were contextualized is that one of the things they bonded about and one of the things that was sort of like a touch point in the book was playing basketball. Yeah. And it made me realize how rarely we see women in pursuing anything athletic or sport related Mm -hmm. in like fiction. Yep. It felt crazy. I'm like, how have I never witnessed a scene of adult women like physically doing something like this, like competing? You're absolutely Um, right. It was shocking. Shocking. Basketball is woven so well into this. I Yeah, I just, if you can't tell, I love this book. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this scene where the two main characters are playing basketball against each other. And Madison, um, who is the more... Who's, this, who's like the wealthy friend who calls on Lillian. For help. Um, who's the burnout yeah. friend, exactly. And she's like married to a senator. They have an estate. Da, 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 mm-hmm. da, da. And a basketball court. Uh, obviously. <laughs> on I the said estate. estate. Yeah. And Madison gives Lillian a black eye. And the sense is that it's purposeful-ish. It feels intentional. And up until that point in the book, I liked both of the women. And even though Madison has sort of thrown Lillian under the bus at various points in their life, I understood why they were friends and I liked her. And at that moment, I felt such rage towards Madison Mm. in a way that I can't remember feeling rage towards a character in a book. I was done with her in that moment. I was so angry with her. It was it, it it incited something in me. That's interesting. Yeah. I think for me, how did I feel about it? I think I thought of it more for me, it revealed the fire in her mm. in that way that you're like, we know you like we have a sense that you have this, okay. but we haven't actually seen it yet. Like interesting. That there is this drive and there's this termination and there's this like kind of clawing your way up. Mm. Um that we just hadn't really witnessed. That's so interesting. So part of why it got to me so much was because Lillian, Lillian's charges, so the stepkids are watching this basketball game go down and they are disasters. Like their mother has died. They catch on fire whenever they start to get upset. And Lillian is very slowly but surely like getting them to a decent place and they are sort of falling for each other. And they are impressed by Lillian's basketball um, Technique and have put her on a pedestal for this. Yeah, yeah this is a thing exactly. that has won, her, won them over. Exactly. So they're like excited for her and rooting for her. And so when Madison gives her this black eye while the kids are watching, I was just like, how dare you? How dare you do that in front of these kids? I was so angry about it. But I also think, not to defend Madison in this mm-hmm. at all, um, I also think Madison hasn't even been present enough to know that that's really what's happening. Right. Like, I don't even like... Well, so, okay, this leads me to my next point that I think this book, what I really took away from it, and Chris didn't at all, um, was I thought it was such an interesting just examination of parenting. I agree. Um, And parenting techniques. And part of what I think that is not part of Lillian's parenting style, or sorry, Madison's parenting style, to even like think in that way of like, what is the impact of this basketball game on the kids watching right now? I think the book is obviously enjoyable, whether you're a parent or not, because it's just really well written. But it is such an interesting take on parenting because you have this woman who has, um, so Madison, the wealthy woman, has a child of her own, and then these two stepkids to deal with, and Lillian comes in and essentially becomes like, a, a guardian. A guardian, yeah, but very much not a parent to the other kids. And you see her for the first time reckon with what does it mean to raise these kids and like what is my role in all of this? And it's super fascinating. Yeah, 100%. Something we wanted to do that we used to do when we had a sort of book club segment on this podcast mm-hmm. was to cast these characters. Yes. Because, and you and you certainly do not have to have read this book to get, like, a sense of who this is, mm-hmm. and maybe this will, in, like, inspire you to want to yep. read it. So we're going to cast the 
Four well, main characters. Five. Five. Okay. Five main characters. Mm-hmm. Lillian, who is the governess. Madison, the fancy mom. Yeah. Um, Jasper, her senator husband. Carl, who's like... He's like the... He's sort of the... Um, Bodyguard right slash butler yeah. slash B- personal body assistant. Man. Yeah, he's the body man. Yeah. Body man. And a little bit of the fixer, too. Totally. For uh, for Car- uh, for, for Jasper. Jasper. And then Lillian's mom. Yeah. Okay, Lillian. So I'm going to do Lillian Madison at the same time because I feel yeah. like you have to cast them together. I think that's right. And I felt really strongly while I was reading it that Kristen Wiig and Rose Byrne needed to be reunited in this movie as alt versions of their bridesmaid characters. I love it. Bridesmaids characters. It just felt really right. And I also loved the idea of Kristen Wiig in a darker role, that there are comedic elements of it, but it's darker for sure than her regular fare. Totally. If we went a little younger, Mm -hmm. Aubrey Plaza for Lillian. And then I think there's like so many ways you could go Mm -hmm. for Madison. You could do Anna Camper, Brittany Snow. Yeah. Um, Blake Lively, I think, would also Absolutely. work incredibly well, especially with Aubrey Plaza. Oh my God, do you love a Blake Lively, Audrey, Aubrey Plaza pairing? Wouldn't that be so good? Why isn't the world giving that to us? Oh, why, why aren't we just sitting here? <laughs> why aren't we at Sony right now? Yeah, totally. Um, Jasper was much harder. I didn't think so. I really think John Slattery. Yeah, no, John Slattery's good. I just, for some reason, I feel like John Slattery's too petite. Okay, yeah. I, I want mean, like a bigger man. In fact... You know, while we're talking Mad Men, I think I think John Hamm could be Jasper. I think a little too uh, well, maybe because in fact the whole like sort of reserved Don Draper, what's actually going yeah. on in his head situation works for Jasper. Okay, this is a real curveball, mm-hmm. um, and I can't even tell you how I thought of this person's name, Eric Dane. <gasps> wow, I know exactly who Eric Dane is. Rebecca Gayhart's husband. That's the guy. As, Rebecca Gayhart Dane. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca Gayhart Dane's husband. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. What was I think the last had, thing he was in? Claire, I don't know, but he had the build I think you're looking <laughs> okay. for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, the other person that we pondered was Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, I think this works. And I think, I think Patrick yeah. Dempsey works. You for need sure. someone who has like a very certain level of polish and like a look about him, but maybe mm-hmm. not a whole lot else going on. Yep. <laughs> Patrick Dempsey's so offended right now. <laughs> um, um, all right, Carl the body man. Max Greenfield, feel great yeah. about it. Yep, I feel good about that too. Chris had thought BJ Novak, which is like one step to the left of Max Greenfield. Yes. And then I think a couple steps to the right would be Mark Wahlberg, which I'm not sure if he's interested in <laughs> a role of this scale, but you know, we'll let him decide yeah. or Jeremy Renner. Yeah, that's more That's more what I was thinking. The other thing in general throughout this book that neither you nor Chris got behind was I was like, why did... Lillian, the fuck-up governess, and Carl, the body man, not get together at the end. It just felt like that's where they were headed. And so I was imagining... And I I was like, because that wasn't what was happening at all. (laughs) I can't help it. I think I just want a romance in every story. You were looking for the, like, underlying... Yeah. Yeah, So I definitely was thinking of Carl as as more of a hunk. More of the Mark Wahlberg, Jeremy Renner type. You don't think Max Greenfield's a hunk? I don't. Okay. He annoys. The I mean, crap no, out no. He's me. he's very he's very smiley, like dimple grin. If yeah. you need a reminder, he's the one. He's in Veronica Mars, and also what's the Zoe Deschanel show? New Girl. He's a New Girl, right? Yes, yes. yes um, he's yeah. a New Girl, and he's um, a Leo on mm-hmm. Veronica Mars. Yeah, and annoying in both. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, so the other like bit character that comes into play is Lillian's mom, who aids and abets her sort of like. Direction, lack of Demise, direction in life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, there felt like, it felt like there was only one answer for this and it's Ellen Burstyn. At 100%. Yeah. There's no one else who could play this role. That's right. If if she doesn't accept, we can't make the movie. 
<laughs> so if you've been fast forwarding through everything, you can stop now. <laughs> if you're so bored by this because you haven't read the book and you don't care. I think, well, anyway, now I'd like to talk about another book that we both read that I loved and you liked. Y- yeah, that's, that's right, actually. <laughs> yeah. Open yeah. book by Jessica Simpson. Yeah. Don't fast forward through this part. You're going to want to hear. Oh my God. So good. So this started with Erica messaging Jamie Beck and me with a New York Times Sunday Styles article being like, oh my God, we all have to read the Jessica Simpson book. It really felt like the intersection of all of our interests. Yeah. Um, it is a very good profile by Lindsay Mannering in the New York Times. And I was like, oh yeah, duh. I've already read everything there is to know about this book. And I hadn't encountered anything about this yeah. book. And I was like, where have you been reading about it? <laughs> and you were like, well, just Jared and E. And I was like, got it, got it. That's why I haven't seen anything about it because I haven't been following those news sources as closely as I should be, I suppose. Well, you know, the only consistent thing in my nighttime ritual is watching E! News online Insta It doesn't stories. get served to me anymore. Wow. Instagram. I need to like actively, That's it's so, so upsetting. I don't understand. Yeah. I'm like, I watched that content every time yeah. you gave it to me. Why would you take it away? Oh my God. What are you doing algorithm? Yeah. So yeah, so I was getting, and then I, this is a very recent thing that I started following just Jared on Instagram and I can't defend the decision, but it was definitely served to me on like- And like in 2020, you did that. (laughs) Yes, I know. Something happened. And it might have have possibly been. I don't even look at my explore page unless there's something really eye catching. And honestly, it was probably Jessica Simpson content. And I clicked, I like clicked on it and then was like, sure, why aren't I following just Jared? If I could pay someone to get to the bottom of how you started (laughs) following just Jared on Instagram, I would. Thank you. It's a bit of investigative journalism. (laughs) Thank you for being so invested in my media consumption. Because you have a lot of really questionable Instagram follows, but mm-hmm. most of them, I know exactly how they yeah. started, which is you thought of a person once. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, honestly, I was in a phase where I was understanding, appreciating, and embracing my love of celebrity gossip. Okay. I had, like, I told you I had this really great dream about celebrity gossip, mm. and in the dream, I was like, Celebrity gossip just makes me so happy and I love it so much. So you were actively seeking and you're like, where did I used to get this information? No, No, I really do think this thing got served to me. And instead of just ignoring it, I was like, Claire, you love celebrity gossip. Why wouldn't you put more of it in your feed? Well, listen, (laughs) I'm a little disappointed in my other news outlets for not giving me this content. So maybe you should be following just Jerry. I don't disagree. Um, Um, So anyway, Jessica Simpson's team or Jessica Simpson herself did a very big like press push around this book where they were rolling out little bite-sized pieces of gossip that she revealed and that she reveals in the book to sort of whet your appetite. And I would say that I think part of the reason you liked the book and did not love it is because you consumed every bite-sized piece (laughs) of thing that they rolled out beforehand. So you'd actually read half of the book before it got into your hands. That's right. So a friend got me this book as a birthday present, incredible present. And I brought it with me on a trip Mm -hmm. and I started reading at the airport and all of a sudden, Thomas is reading it over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> and he does have like a weird soft spot for Jessica Simpson. That I've I known this about him for a long time. Cannot explain. I mean, it made some sense, I suppose, when he was 19 in the way that yeah. like a 19-year-old in 2004 would perhaps have a soft spot for Jessica Simpson, mm-hmm. a 19-year-old male. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think it was going to exhibit itself this particular way in him like caring about this book. What I was really shocked by was that you were later describing a a day on of this trip to me and you were like, and it was 
I really wanted to be reading this book during while this thing was happening, but I couldn't because Thomas and I were reading it together. Well, so basically, I thought he was going to read it. Like, I thought he was like going to read a passage or something yeah. and then go back to his New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, instead, he kept reading this book with me and and said, I can't believe she hasn't been profiled by the New Yorker. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, okay. Because the first 200 pages of this mm-hmm. are just like solid gold. Mm-hmm. Like her life is super interesting. There's so many things you didn't yeah. know. This is a person I've been aware of since like, you know, how long mm-hmm. at this point, right? Like yeah. 25 years. So this is actually was really interesting to me about the book is that I was sort of like, how many people are going to buy this book? What is the relevancy of Jessica Simpson today? And what you realize is that she's had an incredibly long and impressive career and the thing is that she's never quite been like number one, right? No. Like she's always been, you know, it was like there was the era of like Jessica, Brittany, and Christina, and she never felt and like, Mandy, but and we Mandy, don't need to, yeah, you know. No. <laughs> but she never felt like she was totally at the top. And then throughout these various incarnations, it just never she never took on like quite an icon status, I guess, in the way that she wasn't like the name. Exactly. She wasn't a Brittany or Rihanna, whatever. It, you like, didn't uh, refer to her yeah, as Jessica, it, like right. as for, like first name only in that way. But then what you realize in consuming this book is that she has been very much in the public eye in a really aggressive way for a really long time. And that actually she's like a huge part of, she's been a huge part of our cultural narrative and the way we like think and talk about women in entertainment for so long. And I was like, oh, wow, you actually are really relevant and have been for a long time. Well, and she has built a billion dollar fashion yeah. business when she was still fairly early to that. Oh, like, absolutely. You know, at least in the modern era of mm-hmm. of a celebrity uh, name yeah. business and one that wasn't trying to be like as much as we, we both are very into the Victoria Beckham's line. It yeah. wasn't trying to be that. No, not at all. And it was very much talking to Anybody who is potentially interested in buying boots, not someone who could afford $600 boots. Yeah. I think what what is so interesting is that in reading this book, you get a lot of great celebrity gossip. You get a good story, but you also are just faced with just how recently we were talking about women's bodies in a way that is shocking in 2020. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, she talks about being on diet pills and being on diet pills for like 20 years mm-hmm. um, in a way that was jarring for me, but also like, you know, like, you know that this happens in a culture, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't think of it happening to a specific person or when you see pictures of Jessica Simpson or when you saw Daisy Duke pictures mm-hmm. of Jessica Simpson, you didn't think, but that's what's happening or right. that there's like something else lurking under there that is actually really dark and really unhealthy. Yeah. You just see a short short and like a long tan leg. So part of what's so interesting about this book is that there's so much discussion of her body and her weight gain and her weight loss and the way the media talks about it and the pictures of her that become part of uh, this big media circus. And so you naturally have to stop to Google like every 20 pages. And it's funny because there's no pictures in the book. And I kept thinking, why aren't they putting pictures in the book? And I think, you know, 10 years ago, no question this book would have had a glossy center. 10 pages. Yeah, 10 pages of just pictures. Yeah, Yeah. of color photos of her. But now you just, you don't have to spend the money to do that because you're just going to Google. But you do need the visual aids with all of this stuff because there are so many choice descriptions. Well, there was your favorite, which was so excellent. So the best line in the whole book is describing a sort of early encounter that she had with Nick Lachey. Mm -hmm. And she describes what she's wearing, what he's wearing. And it is a cream ribbed turtleneck sweater 
with red overalls with one strap undone. It's such an excellent visual. It's so good. And like, yeah. it's kind of making fun of him, but it's mostly sort of just making it's fun of her. her. Well, yeah. also, yeah. but like a little bit making fun of her for being like, this was like the, this is the image of the person I was like, <sighs> like sweating yep. so hard. Like, yep. this is it. No, it's uh and that we all were in our like <laughs> completely. Way. I did so much googling of Nick Lachey <laughs> in a way that I did not expect to be doing in 2020 and was astounded at his style. His style also hasn't evolved that much. He's not wearing that like the boy, the no. boy band costumes, but he's definitely wearing an oversized cargo khaki short and a and white baseball cap in the same a, way yeah. as the Javianas. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to say about this is that it's funny. Mm-hmm. Like it is it is funny. She she gets what's funny about her. She gets what's funny about the culture that she came up in and created and was part of. Like she has a sense of humor about herself. She definitely does. It feels very honest and in on the joke in a way that makes it easier to consume than I thought it would be because yes. she does feel very real. Yes. Yes. Um okay, the other thing we want to spend a bit of time on mm-hmm. um is John Mayer. So, we Typically, don't go negative on this podcast, (laughs) Um, but we're willing to make an exception for Mm -hmm. John Mayer. I think he deserves it. Yeah. Here's what I will say. This book confirmed everything that I already knew about John Mayer. Yeah, you've been beating this drum for a long time. I have disliked this man for such a long time, and you know what? I was right. What started it for you? Okay, so my first bad encounter with John Mayer, and this was just, uh, this isn't even really his fault. Um, So when his first album, Room for Squares, came out, in 2001, 2001, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. I was super into it in the way that you could imagine yeah. a freshman in college girl being into mm-hmm. Room for Squares. And he was going on his first tour and it was he was playing Hard Rock Hotel mm-hmm. in Chicago. It was sold out. Mm-hmm. He was then doing in, like a CD signing release, obviously, obviously. CDs, yeah. 2001, mm-hmm. um, at like a coffee shop slash record shop mm-hmm. um, in Chicago. So my roommate and I got up super early to go to this event. We were super psyched. We were like in the front. You know, he played a song or two off the album and watching him perform. Mm-hmm. You know what he, you know how he does where he'll like, he's like swaying and he rolls his <laughs> eyes into the back of his yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, he just feeling it in himself so hard mm-hmm. um, that I left that being like, I'm no longer a fan. Wow. I am done with you. I'm just like, this, whatever you're projecting, I do not like I'm it. I'm so impressed with the emotional maturity that you had because I think most women and maybe just me at 18 would have watched that and been like, that's odd, but that must be cool. I guess I'll still, I guess that's what I like now. I remember getting the signed CD and then I remember giving it to someone. <laughs> that's how That's how I felt. I, you have always been this <laughs> confident in your conviction and I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, but then from there, I feel like I, you know, it, it was hard not to follow him for a long time, mm-hmm. and just hit, like all of his interactions with women just like rubbed me the wrong way, yeah. and it was like so undermineery. Oh, so he very quickly became like, so visibly awful. Yeah. Um. So so obviously awful. So obviously awful. Um. And of course, the way that he always talked about Jessica Simpson and called her sexual Nepalm oh and yeah. Um. But seeing the but the behind the curtain of yeah. that relationship in this book is it's super depressing There's because so it drags much, on yeah. for so long, and you see just how much this relationship affected her and fueled an addiction, and you know all sorts of things. There's so much John Mayer in this book, and it is a relationship, like a 
sort of abusive. It, it is an abusive relationship dynamic that I think is more common than you'd like to think. Yes. And that I'm certainly familiar with and that I hope is helpful for a lot of people reading it. And I imagine resonates with a lot of people reading it because I think he's... um he like belittles her and um, makes her feel dumb, makes her feel dumb. And she feels very sort of, I think, controlled by him in that way. And, and feels he thinks the of her to... like as a muse. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, as fuel for his art. And he's totally obsessed with her. And yeah. I would say to me, she describes really awful toxic behavior. And he has been revealed in the media to be awful and toxic fully on his own without Jessica Simpson having to describe him as that way. But one of the most damning details <laughs> in the book is that while they are broken up, he, and she's, she's I think, living in Texas at the time, and her parents and John Mayer are living in Los Angeles. Like in Calabasas. Yeah. yeah. And he is just coming over to Joe and Tina Simpson's house and hanging out with them all the time. Why? Why? That is so embarrassing. It's incredibly <laughs> embarrassing, but it's like to manipulate. And yes, like, it's definitely to favor. Her. And, and it's because he wants to get back together and he thinks if he can convince them, and he does, and he convinces her parents that he's in love with her and he'll he'll treat her well. And so they get in her ear about it. But it's so embarrassing. Like, you're so much younger than these people. This, these are your ex-girlfriend's parents who you have very little in common. Get out of there. What are you doing? Get out of there. Go find friends your own age. Oh, I hated it. I also have a John Mayer story. Yours is even better than me just seeing him (laughs) at a concert and not liking him. Um, So the year is 2010. I am like very casually dating. And one of the people that I'm very casually dating, I guess, texts me. I guess we were texting at this in 2010. We were. And it was like sort of late. And I I remember kind of being like, should I even do this? But he was like, I'm out at a bar and then we're going to go to my friend John's house and like just you know, just come meet up at the bar. And I remember being like, it's so late. I shouldn't do this. But like, okay, what else am I doing? Sure, I'll go meet up. So I go meet up at the bar. And then it turns out that the John's house that we're going to is John Mayer. And I had no idea. Like, I did not know this person knew John Mayer, um, much less was hanging out at his house. So there's like a group of maybe like six of us that all go up to John Mayer's apartment in Soho. And John Mayer's apartment, I don't remember if I found out after the fact or if I already knew going in, but it had been like completely outfitted by um, Armani Casa. You knew before, (laughs) but keep going. (laughs) And um, it looked like it. And so it was just like really slick, sleek and glossy. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of a really shiny table was a typewriter. And this was like, you know, like steampunk was happening in 2010 and, but steampunk was also embarrassing in 2010. And I was just like nervous also, not nervous, but I was like, I don't know. I was just like in that, you felt know, weird social pressure suddenly yeah. or just like weird. Yeah. Oh, cause the other thing was, it was like a bunch of TV writers also that were like hanging out at his house. So I like just sort of awkwardly make this joke and look, I pointed to the typewriter and I said, oh, is that for answering emails? And he just responds completely in earnest. No, it's for writing lyrics. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Sorry. And I was, so, and I like, I think that honestly put me so much more at ease because I was like, oh, you're, you're a goon. so awful. You're a like, goon. I didn't make the best joke in the world, but you are so embarrassing. Um, and you didn't get that it was a joke. <sighs> Read this book. Tell us what you think. I don't know. I thought it was real good. <laughs> it was. It was totally delightful. Um, um, okay. We have time for one more author. Yeah. All right. So. 
I've been also reading a lot of children's books lately, and most, Tons. I some most of them just get really old really quick. But I never ever tire of reading books by Sandra Boynton. They are all really funny, charming board books that are just the right length. Um, our Sandra Boynton habit started because somebody gifted us a book called Hippos Go Berserk, um, which is an excellent book title, and. Um, I was like, this is the only book I can deal with reading a million times over. So I went and started collecting a lot more of them. And it turns out she's written a ton. She has written more than 60 board books and sold 75 million copies over 40 Holy years. Moly, yeah, it's 75 insane. million. I know. And all of them are really quirky and weird and in a and like totally a tiny bit dark. Oh, there's one called But Not the Hippopotamus. And it's just about all of these animals who are doing fun stuff. And then it just it always ends in But Not the Hippopotamus. Like so-and-so are doing this and that, but not the hippopotamus. So-and-so are doing that, but not the hippopotamus. And then huh. at the very end, they invite the hippo to come and join them. And the hippopotamus is is like, fine, yes, I'm I'm joining in. And you're so psyched that you're finally getting a happy ending. But the last pages but not the armadillo. Is the point that everyone's excluded at some point? <laughs> you know, well, I, I, have no idea. I think it's, a, I don't know, but basically Sandra Boynton got a ton of complaints from parents in response to this book being like, my child is very concerned about the armadillo. Can you please address this? I, like my child's so upset. What happened to the armadillo? And Sandra Boynton resisted it for a really long time because she was like, no, like let them worry about it and figure it out on their own. That's life. And then finally she succumbed to the pressure and wrote a book called But Not the Armadillo because <laughs> people were so upset. But she has just like a really odd, quirky sense of humor and writes about totally trivial things. There's one called the belly button book. And, you know, I wouldn't just, say belly buttons are trivial, but go you're, on. You're go right. On. You're right about that. But I, for the longest time, would just Google her every once in a while because I was like, I need to get inside this woman's head. I need to understand her. And the only thing that ever surfaced for me really was her Instagram, which is like just as weird as she is. She celebrates every single made-up holiday. That's like her Instagram strategy, basically, as she writes a cartoon for every single one. So like February 16th is Do a Grouch a Favor Day. And then February 8th is National Kite Flying Day. And her caption is, seriously official national days, people, in February? Like she, <laughs> She's not wrong. She's not wrong. It's a weird time to have National Kite Flying Day. But then I was so psyched to find that somebody finally answered my prayers and wrote a pro a very extensive profile of her in the Atlantic. And I was like, thank you. I'm not the only what person gift. who wants to understand this woman better. And it gave me everything I was looking for. She lives in a farm in Connecticut where she has all of these sort of like sculptures and paraphernalia of the various animals that she includes in her book. The author of the profile asks her why she doesn't have any real animals. And the answer is really sad, which is just that she lost her husband and two of her dogs like in the same year. And oh, she's no. like, I can't deal with any more death, basically. So I'm not going to have real animals. Um and she has a really interesting backstory. Basically, she was at Yale and she applied to a children's book writing course that was taught by Maurice Sendak. And she had to like submit this application and he dismissed it, her portfolio as greeting card art. And instead of just being sad about it, she was like, oh, okay. And went and got a job with recycled paper greetings, selling and was them like, her greeting card. Great idea. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. No I'm shame in. in that game. I'm totally in. So she stopped waitressing and just started sending all of her art to recycled paper greetings. And they were like, this stuff is selling so well, we'll publish literally whatever you send us. So she eventually then in her graduate program writes Hippos Go Berserk. This is her first book. She sends it out to the traditional publishers. They all reject it. So Recycled Paper Greetings is like, I guess we'll publish your book. <laughs> and they're like, we'll take it. And it's gone on to sell 2 million copies. And Maurice Sendak is now like her mentor and very supportive and loves her. She like obsesses over 
all of the details of her book and gets in fights with like all her she, her translators and her editors and her salespeople because she's like, no, it has to be exactly this word or exactly this translation. She fired one of the Spanish translators of one of her books because he, they were fighting over the word for dance. And she was like, it just, it has to be this word, not that word. And fine, I'm just going to translate it myself. Um, she insists on all of her books being, um, when possible, being made in the United States by the one person in the United States who makes board books. Some of them are made in Mexico. She's like, she had a fight with her publisher sales agents who were like, why is the word in tone in a children's book? And she was like, we're reading this to a zero year old. All language is new to them. Like, why are we going to quibble over this? Why not? Give they don't them know word? that's an SAT word. Yeah, why They not? don't know any words. Exactly. And yeah, I just found it totally inspiring. And it, I left it being like, I think I finally understand why I've met so many people whose lifelong dream is to become a children's book author, like, which was always struck me as so odd. I feel like I can name at least five friends slash acquaintances who are like, I'd love to write a children's book one day. And I was like, why? And then reading in this profile, I was like, I do kind of get it. There's like, I, you get inside her head a little bit and you're like, yeah, that's so wonderful. This and, is pretty magical, actually. Yeah. And the challenge of of getting it just right and of um, pleasing both children and parents in this way that is impossible, but also requires you to just dispense with all like logic, really. Um, I really appreciate it. She does make it seem like really hard work. I will say that too. It's like not easy to- Which I feel like is a real misconception about children's books. Exactly. And one of the things she said, and she gets this advice from somebody, maybe Maurice Sendak, is that um, children's in children's books, the illustration should do most of the work. And she's, she both writes and illustrates her books herself. And so she's like, it's actually really hard to like figure out how to use language as sparingly as possible in the way that she does it, which I thought was interesting. I love that. Yeah. We have a lot to say about some salty condiments and some and really books. compelling authors. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that's the show. Bye. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at claireandericka.com. 